Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right, we are live. Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is familiar faces to any of you who have been with us for a while. This is Rachel Marshall, my co-host Bruce Weiner, and our, I forgot to count before the show, I'm pretty sure this is your seventh time returning Ooh, guest, <laughs> Rabbi <laughs> Daniel Lappin. So huge round of applause virtually, if we can, for Rabbi Lappin. Thanks for having me back, Rachel and Bruce. It's uh, it's it's really a great, great pleasure. I do a lot of interviews, obviously, and many of them are a little arduous and they are chores, but um, speaking with you always feels more like a conversation among friends on substantive and important topics rather than an interview. So thanks for having me back. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we love just the conversation. We love the way that you unpack so many ideas that are extremely useful to not just Christians, but to entrepreneurs, to people who want to get their finances in order, who really want to understand money and have a good relationship with money. And every conversation we have just comes at it from a different angle. And I love that all of our conversations are, um, we're never repeating information. We're not um, going back over the same thing. We're, We're continuing to break new ground. And you're always doing wonderful work, Rabbi, in your courses and your podcast and your shows. And you just have so much to share that we love bringing you back. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it because uh, not everybody appreciates my approach, which, as you know, was based on, on extensive research over many years on a question which causes considerable unease and not least among my own co-religionists, which is the observation that uh, Jews happen to be disproportionately good with money. And this is not just in the United States in the 21st century, but it's been true in in hospitable and wonderful countries. And it's also been true in in oppressive and problematic regimes. Uh, And it's been true in in every century and every time. So, uh, So it isn't that Jews just happen to be disproportionately good with money. Uh, there really is something to it. And that formed the basis of, of all my work, which is basically uh, making it possible for people of every background to increase their revenue. I mean, it's it's terribly, terribly important. And I always get uneasy uh, when people, and, and very often it's religious people, both Christian and Jewish, who feel so awkward about money that um, they they aren't even really sure whether they want to increase their revenue. And one thing they do know is they certainly don't want anybody to know <laughs> that they'd like to increase their revenue because they're embarrassed sure. about it. Sure. And that's a problem that definitely is pervasive and prevalent in American culture, in the church, in Christian culture. And I can't speak to Jewish culture, mm-hmm. but I'm sure that you can, um, that you probably see that as well commonly there. But you're right. It's it's not just religious. In American culture today, um, there, there's without question a uh, a move on the part of the intellectual elite and also government uh, to demonize money and the making of money. It's almost as if um, it's almost as if they view money as something that only the government mm-hmm. should have. And and you can understand that because what money does is gives people independence. Mm-hmm. You you know. You, 
when when somebody says, you know, I don't care what people think, you can be quite sure he's got a few dollars in the bank because nobody who lives hand to mouth doesn't care about what people think. Yeah, you're only you're only a slave to money when you don't have the money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rabbi, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the physical and spiritual today and how money is spiritual. Um, but I, but let's get in a little bit about this um, this idea, mm-hmm. and maybe we can tie it all together, because you know it does seem like the government, or or even mm-hmm. I think it's even moving more into corporations now. I don't know if you have the same where they're trying to spread out the money equally, and all I think that's all it's going to do is actually um, it's going to thwart in- innovation that's actually going to help. People at the lower economic uh, rung even more if they if we can innovate, they're the ones who benefit. If we thwart innovation, they're actually going to to uh, be even more um, held back because the two things that are going to be affected in my mind are um, the price of food and the price of energy, which are basically the two things that everybody needs, no matter what your social economic class. And if we don't do things to innovate in those two areas, then obviously it's going to be like a, a poor tax on people because that's actually just going to, to uh, cause the price of those two industries to go up and thus hurt them even more. Well, there's, there's no question at all that, uh, the official inflation figures at the present time in the United States of America, the, the numbers the government issues, uh, are hopelessly underestimated. They're underestimated for very good political reasons because uh, the the more aware voters become about the seriousness of inflation and the genuine figures, the less happy they will be with politicians. And so those numbers are massaged before they are released and massaged very significantly because it's possible that uh, actual inflation, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, as you said, anybody who goes to the grocery store on a regular basis and anybody who fills their car or pays for oil in any way, or for that matter, buys electricity, um, knows full well that inflation figures are probably at least double uh, the numbers issued by the government. And and the more regulatory the states um the more, uh, if you like, pro-government the states are, like California, the bigger the jump in the cost of energy, whether it's electricity or, or oil. So you're absolutely right, and um, uh, it, yeah, it's it's a very very big problem. And the and the and the two challenges to this redistributive policy, which which young people are being taught at universities and colleges. Mm-hmm. And it's being promoted almost everywhere that it's got to be more equal. There's got to be more equal. The one problem is that uh, we don't have a successful model anywhere in history to, to go on. You know, when has this approach to economics actually worked? When and where? Oh, nowhere at no time? Well, then I recommend you be extremely cautious about applying something to the lives of 300 million people that hasn't been successfully done anywhere. That's one huge problem. The other huge problem is that uh, uh, redistribution is just, or equality is just a really nice word for a really ugly idea, which is taking money away from people who own it. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
and that's really a fundamental value of all morality. We really have to decide, do you or do you not agree with the statement that nobody else has a right to any money that you have made? Now, I have an obligation to pay taxes and I have an obligation to give charity. That's nothing to do with you. It's my obligation. Uh, but nobody has a right to my money. And redistribution can only be accomplished in that way. People sometimes say, well, it'll come from the government. <laughs> and, and something that's really worthwhile people understanding is that the government can only get money by taking it from the people who have made it. The government has no way to create wealth. Mm -hmm. Government has, the government can print money, but that's just another way of taking it away from productive people. It's called inflation. And, um, and so, no, there is no way for the government to give you money other than taking it away from other people. So they then transfer it and give it to you. And you'd be amazed how much sticks to their fingers on the route from my pockets to yours. I think this whole idea of money and government redistribution of wealth, capitalism, should we be entitled to earn and keep the fruit of our labors? I mean, it all comes down to fundamentals of what we believe about the world, why the world exists, who we are in the world, our relationship with each other, are humans valuable or not? I mean, Rabbi, you're always unpacking these different ideas of do we believe in God or do we not? I mean, that's really kind of the fundamental core of all of this. But um, before we get too far, I'm not able to access the chat, so I'm going to try to log into at least YouTube, where we know probably most of our listeners are. And I, I'm, oh, please. Yeah, I'm actually on, on YouTube, and we, okay. do, we do have some quick comments. Um, okay. I can't see them in the normal um, section, so I'm going to pull that up just so, Bruce, you can bring any questions up here. I do want to say, if you have questions for Rabbi or any comments that you'd like to share, um, but specifically if you have questions about the nature of money or anything that we're discussing today, whether money is physical or spiritual, um, or just your your um, familiarity with Rabbi Daniel Lappin and his work up to this point, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and pop your comments into the live stream chat. And if you are listening after the fact, we'd love to hear your comments and questions as well. So this topic today specifically that we're talking about is money is spiritual. Now there's so much discord about this idea because money is often confused and misunderstood and classified as part of our carnal, basic, you could even call it sinful, our natural, our um, our human nature that's the ugly part of ourselves. And yet money is actually spiritual. That That's what we're going to unpack today. Understanding money, earning money, managing it, using it, growing money. It's a very important part of our lives and it's deeply spiritual. And understanding that simple shift that money is not physical. I mean, there's a physical component to money, but money is not only physical. It's also very spiritual can cause you to be able to improve your finances with just this simple mindset shift. And so that's what we're unpacking today. If you have questions about that, or you want to know specifically, why is money spiritual? Please go ahead and drop that in the comments. Uh, you know, the only thing I would like to, uh, to, to, to add to, to that intro, Rachel, is that um, what we're going to be talking about is as applicable to people who have no faith or God component in their lives, people whose lives are completely secular, um, because a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that when we speak about spiritual, that is synonymous with religion or God or piety or virtue. We're not. Um, I'm, I'm not wearing my rabbi hat 
when I speak about spiritual, I'm wearing my hat as somebody who who made his living in engineering. Um, f- spiritual simply means something which cannot be measured in a laboratory. And I think it's really important to note that um, things like integrity, I mean, that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're applying for a job somewhere, if you can figure out a way of persuading them of your integrity, that's a major step forward to being made an offer for that job. And if as a uh, HR, as a human resources person, if you had a way of testing for integrity, um, every every company in the world would be the path to your doorstep because one of the biggest challenges in hiring somebody, particularly in the financial services industries, is how do you know you're hiring, hiring somebody of integrity? And, you know, let's make no mistake about it, that there are many um, personality tests that are routinely administered by companies, the famous Myers-Briggs and many, many, many others. And let's just make clear, these are not in any way capable of measuring these spiritual attributes. They measure psychological types and personality types, but there's no Myers-Briggs number that tells you if somebody is going to be um, routinely uh, resilient, mm-hmm. somebody who can be knocked down and will will pick themselves up again. No, there is no test for that. Integrity, you know, no test for that at all. Um, loyalty, no test for that at all. And yet, these are all vitally important spiritual attributes. And 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 let me just say this: that every single time somebody buys an item of clothing for not strictly utilitarian purposes. In other words, if instead of buying a pair of overalls with a zip that runs from the left leg to the right shoulder, you basically, these are great. I mean, I use them whenever I'm working on my boat. You step into them, you pull them up, you zip it. I am dressed in about 18 seconds flat. It's wonderful. And if I need to change to another one, I unzip it, step out and do another. Now, that's a utilitarian garment. And to tell you the truth, I have no idea who the manufacturer is of those, of those garments. But this, this blazer I'm, I'm wearing now, I'll tell you exactly who made it for me because that's important to me. Now we're talking spiritual. Because I want to appear a certain way to you, I'm wearing certain clothing, but from a utilitarian point of view, I could just as well appear in a a pair of swimming trunks, you know, as long as the temperature in in this room is up. And so every time somebody buys clothing because of the label, that's spiritual, not physical. Um, I've noticed something that on women's clothing catalogs, I very often see a word that has never yet ever appeared on a man's clothing catalog, and that's the word modesty. Mm. It's hilarious. You know, you'll see things. I mean, I, I'm always intrigued by this. I, I read it, and then it says, available with opaque lining for modesty on some, you know, relatively sheer woman's garment. There's no such thing in men's clothing. Hey, for modesty, uh, oh, yeah, right, we care. I mean, you know. So that, again, um, that any time a woman pays attention to that, that is a spiritual decision. 
and um and and so i i just want to make this clear that we're not talking church or synagogue here we're talking daily economic activity don't think that uh spiritual is important if one of my employees comes to me to ask for a raise and he's very unhappy with what he's being paid and it's perhaps a little bit of a tight time for me i don't really want to give him a raise but i also don't want to lose him and then i i discuss with i talk to him and try and probe a little bit and then i discover that it's not really he's covering all his bills but money is also a symbol of appreciation and recognition and that if i gave him expanded responsibilities in a new title and a corner office with windows on two sides he'd be very happy and there we go by just remembering that money is spiritual not physical and that what the spiritual needs that money satisfies may not necessarily be another pound of carrots i can make that a win win i don't have to pay out any more money but he gets what he needs so each and every one of us can benefit financially by understanding the spiritual implications of what money really is what's very interesting is that money we think about as a tangible thing i mean it started with gold coins or you know bartering first and and trading physical commodities for something else so it's it's this exchange but when we really get down to it i mean now we have bitcoin and cryptocurrency and everything's digital you use your card and you don't even necessarily have to be present physically you can purchase something online so money feels more intangible now than it used to for that reason however when you really look at money being spiritual let's unpack that a little bit thank you for giving the definition between what is the difference between physical and spiritual physical something that can be measured in a lab spiritual something that cannot be measured in a lab so as we continue on that path how would you say money is spiritual uh well you you touched on one aspect of it, of course and and just to clarify gold is also spiritual in other words you know who decreed mm. that the metal of monetization should be this yellow uh, substance called gold why not the white substance called platinum uh, or for that matter you know why not something else entirely and um and there are reasons for it but they're usually spiritual reasons more than they are physical reasons uh and and secondly this the spirituality of money has certain problems with it let me give you an example um we we always went to great lengths whenever we gave money to our children you know child had to pay for something we never gave them a credit card or a credit card number or anything. we never did that i always reached into my pocket and took out cash no matter how much you know unless it was something ridiculous but but even up to hundreds of dollars uh, always with cash because i didn't want to sever the connection in the child's spiritual makeup between me going to work every day and the child having the money you give a child a credit card and it's all virtualized and there is no uh, profound and visceral connection in the child's mind between dad goes to work and that's why this money is here no it's all it's all behind the scenes it's just you know waving a credit card or nowadays you know you you have a, 
a pay on your on your cell phone. Gosh, so the sixteen year old has a smartphone now, when he needs to to buy something, <laughs> it's you know, gosh, you know, they can order instant food showing up at the door with a driver, and not for one moment does it occur to them that that's out of my sweat and 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 blood. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in in many ways, diminishing the 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 spiritual nature of making it as concrete as possible is very very helpful when it comes to raising children because you only have a few years to get these ideas locked in, and and so during that time, I always recommend to people always always cash as inconvenient as it can be to you sometimes because you know you don't use cash so much and but I always made a point. Of walking around with with more cash than I, I ordinarily would, simply because I wanted to make sure that if I needed to to give money to a child for any legitimate purpose, uh, it was always in cash. And when we 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 didn't just do allowances, no money for nothing. Uh, it was always specifically pay for certain chores and certain activities, and again, always in cash and always um, a. Uh, uh, almost a government-like taxation policy where we'd give them the money and then take back some for savings purposes and put it over here, take back some for charitable purposes, put it over there. You can decide where you want to um, where you want to give the charity, but that's the process. Anyway, just by way of clarifying the spiritual nature of money, sometimes for educational purposes, it can be a bit of a, of a disadvantage in their ways of compensating for that. Well, I think what's interesting is that you're talking about two different components. So one, the way we spend money is spiritual because we have reasons for spending money that's more than utilitarian. But then you're talking about how do we teach that money is also valuable and it's connected to our work. So I see spiritual yes. the spiritual nature of money is. being very connected to mm-hmm. this spiritual side of I am providing value to another human. They're receiving value. That's how I'm getting paid in the first place. So now I have this money. The creation of money is very spiritual as well, isn't it? Um, it is, and um, uh, and 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 to just add in as well that uh, when the government introduced withholding tax, and Bruce, I don't remember exactly when there was. It was before, I, long before I came to the United States, but. Up until that time, you got paid gross amounts of salary, and then you had to write a check. And I also know that at the time it was introduced, a certain manif- a certain factory owner, and I wish I could remember his name so I can give him credit. I'll try and look it up. <clears throat> he used to give, when withholding was introduced, he used to pay his employees at one window, and then they had to move to the next window and pay it back for him. And he was by he was legally restrained from doing that precisely because government did not want people to be viscerally and consciously aware of their money being taken away from them. Mm. So, um, uh, so it's just as, as you say, it's it's on the receiving side and and on the paying side, but uh, but understanding that essentially uh, money is brought into being. When one human being serves another, there is no other way of money being created. And people must really understand that if the government prints money, that's really not the creation of money at all. Absolutely. So that that is the 
So that actually happened, uh, looked it up real quickly. In 1943, Congress passed the Current Tax Payment Act, which required employers to withhold taxes from employees' wages and, re- and remit them quarterly. What I find interesting about this, there's now, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this, uh, Rabbi, but there's now services. Uh, we, have, we have detached ourselves so much from physical money there are now people that are have come up with services that help you get rid of subscriptions that you've signed up for and you're not even using. And so that's that's an example. That's an example how I've seen those ads. I've been very tempted to sign up because I'm sure I have some of those floating around. <laughs> yeah, uh, I experienced this a lot with my mother one day, um, and I won't go into it, but for the same you know same reason. She was just signing up for things, not knowing she was signing up. And it was actually going on her AT&T phone bill uh, and, and had no idea why her phone bill was going up every month. Um, yeah, right. But, but it's the same kind of uh, thing that the government discovered that there's no vis- there's not as I shouldn't say no, there's not as much vis- visceral reaction as if you just mm. take it out of the paycheck and stream it back to them a little bit every month, just like that gym membership of $10.99 every month that's coming out of your bank account. You don't really think about it. You don't miss it or some kind of streaming service. Now, that's a big one, you know, a streaming service, how you get media. But yes, that was that was a brilliant move on them to, to remove the visceral reaction of actually having to, to and write I think a check us. Many of us have latched onto that idea with the subscription model. Uh, Microsoft was obviously one of the first when they started introducing the idea that they don't want to sell you the package of software, which is going to be good for the next five years until there's the next compulsory upgrade. But instead, they want to sell you an annual subscription to the software. And and that's obviously spread extensively, uh, particularly in the music area as well. So yeah, that's um, that is an I that is uh, all part of what you're describing, which is to try and make it as painless as possible for people to buy. It's the same way for our phones. Uh, I I've yes. talked to AT and T, and they they want to get you to just to pay it every month. And I'm like, no, I'll just pay it right away. What kind of discount do I get? And they're like, there is no discount if you mm-hmm. pay it right away. And I'm, I'm like dumbfounded. I mean, it, it makes no yeah. sense, but they want, they want that to be as pain. They don't want you to pay $1,200. They want you to pay a little bit. So the pain's not there for you. So that you just continue to, to re up over and over and over. It's well, a very inter- yeah. interesting and then you concept. Look at credit card companies too. I mean, just the whole idea that, well, you can pay monthly a small amount can get people into a lot of trouble if they're in a position where they think, Oh, I can afford the payment. Oh, I'm going to rack up all these payments. And if they instead had to to secure the cash first and then pay, they probably wouldn't have made the purchase yeah. in the first place. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And um, yeah, the, the idea is for people to uh, uh, to to feel less pain in order to to ease the transaction. And and I mean, I totally understand that, of course. But uh, all of that is easier. On the part of people who recognize that that the money is a spiritual thing, really, and um, and and the tension between seeing it as linked to your time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears uh, on the one hand, and on the other that it's it it's something that comes into being because of human interaction, uh, 
yeah, look, it's important, and uh, and it's what I think you know we we focus on helping everybody get a, a stronger handle on. Well, another so thought comes a, to oh, go ahead. Well, no, Rachel, go ahead and finish. The, uh, okay. There's a lot of comments on there YouTube. Are, I was, like I'd like I to gonna, get a couple of these. I was going to bridge over to some of them. So I think there's this idea that comes to mind for me that money being spiritual is if you are looking at the earning of money, there's not just, you mentioned trading your time and energy or blood, sweat, and tears for something, but not every person who puts in one hour gets paid the same. A person who has a certain job may get paid $20 an hour and somebody else might get paid a thousand dollars an hour. And that's not unfair. That's due to the intellectual capital that they provided maybe the connections, the social capital, the spiritual capital, the um, the way that they contributed to that other person to provide the value is a spiritual nature. I mean, it's not just the physical time that they spent on the job. And so- No, very much so. Um, I was once talking to the founder of a, a national um, chain of, of what is now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, hardware stores around the world. And we stood on his on the top floor of his building. And, um, and at one point, I said to him, um, wh- why should you make so much more money? And I pointed down at the window to the streets below. And I pointed at, uh, at, at a bus going by. And I said, why should you make so much more money? than that bus driver. And he said, it's simple. It's because I work my, and then he used a noun for the rearmost portion of his anatomy (laughs) and followed by the word off. (laughs) I work my blank off. That's why. And I said, well, I'm sure you do work your blank off, but I'll tell you one thing. You don't work it off nearly as hard as that guy driving the bus. He's got a harder job than you. Mm -hmm. So I still don't see why you should get paid such huge multiples of his earnings. And he sat down at his desk and he put his head in his hand and he said, I is there an answer to that? <laughs> yes, of course there's an answer to that. Let's figure out how many employees you have, right? He said, I don't have to figure it out. I can tell you. And he named the number of thousands. And I said, all those people have jobs because of you. And I said, now, do you have any idea of how many customers on average your stores are serving at this very moment? And he said, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but I can tell you very quickly. And he pressed a button on his intercom and he spoke to his uh, CFO, I guess. And he came back to tell me that at any given time at two o'clock, at any two o'clock in the afternoon on any weekday, their store is serving X thousand of customers. And I said, look how many people's lives you're impacting. That's why you're making more money. The bus driver, if his bus was full, he's impacting the lives of 50 people. That's all. We get paid on the basis of how much we do for how many people. That's how it works because this entire system, in my view, is a godly design system. In your view, it might be an evolutionarily designed system, but it doesn't matter. This entire system is based on institutionalized kindness. It's an institutionalized system of being obsessed with other people's needs and desires. Which is extremely spiritual. And which is extraordinarily spiritual, but that is how money is made. And that's why it is that the government has no capacity to make money. It can't. The uh, and, and I know what people say. Well, I know this person did not do that. They made a lot of money. 
but they're eventually exposed. That's what people don't understand. I once had the supreme joy of meeting an actor called George Burns, if that if oh, yeah. the name rings the bell. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I met him a few days after his 100th birthday. And I'm, I met him at the Hillside Country Club in Los Angeles. And we had the opportunity to chat. And during our conversation, which lasted, I don't know, maybe an hour or hour and a half, um, he smoked two cigars. And I, at one point, I said, Mr. Burns, how many cigars do you smoke a day? He said, oh, I said, seven or eight a day. Um, and I went away thinking to myself, you know, there are always George Burns exceptions. But for anyone else to say to themselves, well, you know what? Obviously, smoking a lot of cigars is the avenue to longevity <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and good health. Um, well, as it turned out, George Burns passed away two or three months after that meeting. Mm. Uh, and I, for, through no, it was just, I mean, I had nothing to do with that, obviously, just to clarify. Uh, <laughs> it's not, it, meeting me is not a jinx on longevity, you know, so it doesn't work like that. But um, but uh, it's, it's similar to this. Yes, we all know exceptions. Uh, we know exceptions of horrible people who end up with a lot of money. It's the exception, not the rule. Uh, we know a lot of young single guys who haven't yet learned um, upbeat human interaction, who through the tech revolution of the last um, 30 or 40 years made a lot of money. But ordinarily, the people who've made a lot of money in America, for instance, can easily be identified, shall we say, the, the C-suite of Fortune 500 companies and other entrepreneurial demographic groupings, by and large, one of the things we know about them is they are all they all have very domestic married lives. Most of them still married to the same person they started off with. That is a very valuable function of making money. Well, I know somebody who's you know had four divorces and and you know and he's making a lot yeah i i there is always a george burns but it's not a good idea to base your life plan on those black swan events yes that's absolutely true and again coming all the way back to the beginning where you were looking for principles that show why something is overwhelmingly true in most cases is really valuable and so we're again looking at why is wealth created in an overwhelming majority of cases by somebody who serves the most people in the most profound yeah. and powerful way. That is a principle of wealth creation. So yeah, creation. yeah right. let's come over to, we've got a lot of comments here and Bruce, I'm sure you oh, want to pick out them. a few. Um, well, I, I think the first one is a, a person who's, whose uh, idea is just economics. And it says in my language, Slovak, the word adjective is called uh Bohati, and if you break it into those three uh, words, bo, uh, t, it literally means God in you. And so, oh, how very interesting! Yeah, so the word rich means God in you in Slovak. Oh, that's very, very nice. Yeah, and then this other one, uh, Rachel, I wanted I wanted to get uh, in front of the rabbi uh, a dedicated life here. She's asking. I've been. I've been fearing to want to be wealthy because of what I've been taught. She fears that she, she shouldn't be wealthy. So how, oh, yeah. how can I break that off my mental state? She's asking. 
Um, so um, an entire, um, more than 10% of my book, Thou Shall Prosper, is devoted to shattering that incredibly destructive spiritual schematic that making money either labels me as a less than good person uh, or that making money is going to end up being a huge problem for me because my family's not going to like me and my friends aren't going to like me or people are going to come and ask me for money. And so people build in a, a negative spiritual schematic about it. And um, uh, it's not a simple matter to overcome, but it's absolutely essential to overcome because nobody can ever excel, no decent person can ever excel at any activity which deep in their hearts they consider to be morally reprehensible. And so uh, I, 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 I can't answer this in a soundbite, I'm afraid. As I say, I devoted more than 10% of my book to the exercises and the programs and the things you absolutely have to do to free yourself of that destructive spiritual schematic. Um, so all I can say is you need to research that. I'm you know, happy to help. You can, you can go to my website or anywhere else you want to go. But um, it's, it's too big a topic. I can't give it to you in three sentences. I can only tell you you have to overcome it. It is a huge handicap to making money. And number two, it is possible to overcome it. That's the best I can do right now. And I'll just add on to that. Thou shall prosper was how my husband, Lucas, and I first found out about you, Rabbi. Uh, I oh, don't wow. know how many years ago we heard about the book. We heard it mentioned somewhere. We got the book. He read it. Lucas read first. I read it next. It was just powerful, completely powerful. And it was principles. I think it was um, principles for making money or biblical commandments for making money or something like that. Uh, the 10 commandments yes. for making money. Yeah. Yes. The yeah, 10 commandments right. for making money. And the it's powerful to really understand money, not just to think that you understand it. And I think for anything that we are apprehensive of or afraid of, if you set aside the emotion and just dig into understanding and look for wisdom, look for knowledge, seek out what it actually means, you're going to find yeah. valuable information. And this is a really wonderful starting point. Thank you very much, Rachel. I, I think it is. I think it's a fantastic book. And uh, I say that not because I wrote it and I liked it, although um, I did write it and I do like it. It was very, very hard to write. Um, but because of the huge number of letters I get from people uh, who tell me it has transformed their entire financial lives. I know it's something we've spoken about on this program before, uh, but with respect to that last question, you know, as long as people remember that that horrible saying that you'll often hear uh, people saying about somebody who made a charitable gift, oh, it's so beautiful to see them giving back to society. Mm -hmm. And, and that is an ugly, ugly expression because what it suggests is that if I'm giving back to society when I give charity, obviously, while I was making my money in the first place, I must have been ripping society off. And so, uh, you know, the first step in, in that progress of getting rid of the destructive spiritual schematic that money is, is synonymous with bad behavior uh, is realizing 
that when you're making money, you're not ripping anybody off. You don't have to give charity to expiate your sin of making money because you've been doing people good just by making the money in the first place. And, you know, the proof of that is, is you know, our babysitter. Uh, you know, she, she made money after looking after our kids, and um, I paid her more than she asked, not as much as she asked. Um, and she didn't rip me off. Now, she thought she was, which is why she was embarrassed to tell me how much to pay her. Mm-hmm. And she said, would $25 be okay, thinking I'm taking away his $25. I'm a terrible person. And my response was, no, it wouldn't be okay. Her immediate reaction to that was to lower her figure. And I said, no, I'm paying you $40, not $25, because that's what you were worth to me. And next time we call you, we want you to be able to drop other things and come and take care of our needs. So once you realize that making money is making money, not taking money, yes, that's already a, a first step on that journey of understanding the virtue and morality and dignity of making money. Wonderful. And I would actually um, just, I want to share Ansu Puthanavidu. Yeah, <laughs> not sure I'm saying <laughs> your last name correctly. Um, said, what are a or the spiritual and biblical principles to increasing wealth? So that comes right in line. You can share more if you like. That's just um, very similar to the previous question, but just wanted to share that one with you as well, Rabbi. Yeah, right. Again, you know, um, it's important not to trivialize important principles by turning them into slogans. Um, it, it it takes a long time to learn truly valuable things. You know, nobody becomes a top-rate sales professional overnight. Nobody becomes a plumber overnight. Nobody becomes a neurosurgeon overnight. So, uh, to to learn to to make money. That's why I, I wrote a ninety thousand word book. It's not something I can tell just in an instant, but but in order to at least set you on the road and put you on the right path, I would say that instead of focusing on what you need, focus on what other people need that you can fulfill. Get away from the idea that this is about your needs. It isn't about what you need. Now I always say that. Uh, our people, the Jewish people, we don't pray to God saying, oh, please, God, send me another $800 so I can pay my monthly payments at the end of this. We don't say that. We say, God, please open my eyes so I can see more of your children that need my help. Mm -hmm. That means I need more clients. I need more customers. Hey, inflation's a problem. It's eating up my money at the rate of well over 1% a month. Well, that just means that I have to increase my earnings this year by 12% minimum. How do I do that? Oh, what am I going to do? It's terrible. No. How do I find more people to serve? And how do I find a way of serving my existing customers or clients more valuably than, than I'm doing? This is just a real basic, simple problem of how to be a better person. Absolutely. And again, I think it's easy to look at outliers and say, how do I become rich overnight? or wealthy overnight. And that's not the answer. The answer is focus on the principles, continue to serve more people and do it more efficiently, do it more successfully, do it in a way that they appreciate even more and continue continue growing. And, you know, people should know even Bill Gates, who for a period was the man who had most money, maybe in the world, I don't recall, but um, he didn't do it. He didn't, he wasn't sitting around and all of a sudden money dropped in his lap. 
he became obsessive about computers and programming. And even so, nothing would have happened had he not partnered up with um, uh, Paul Allen. Mm -hmm. And nothing would have happened had his mother not been on the board of directors of IBM. People don't realize that. And nothing would have happened had his dad not been a nationally known lawyer with brilliant connections. There was a lot of things that came together there. And uh, so nothing ever happens from sitting around thinking about your problems. Things happen from the seed of an action. You have to be actually doing something. And uh, I've often had uh, young people at the start of their working career saying, well, I don't want to start working yet because I don't want to get end up in the wrong job. Compared to sitting around at your mom's basement watching television or playing games, there is no such thing as a wrong job. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, mentality when Rachel and I talk about this on, other, on our, some of our other podcasts about passive income. We, we hate that word or phrase passive income, but yet people tout it all the time. There's no such thing as passive income. You had to have done things to actually produce a cash flow. Now, that, that cash flow, uh, people are touting as passive income. You're, you're seeing it on social media right now where people are saying, just give me this money and you know we'll produce passive income for you. But remember, you actually had to do something actively to actually gain that money with, with a service towards somebody. So, we think there's no such thing as passive income. It's a very similar concept. Uh, you're exactly right. Bruce, that term passive income, was that not a term? Please correct me if I'm wrong on this. Was it not a term that came into being uh, basically on account of the American IRS, the, the taxing system, in order to designate a part of your income as more taxable on a certain level? Is that true? You know what? That I had not thought about that, and I don't know for sure, but that makes sense to me that that would have been it's, the origin. Of that. It's like another term which, which you and me both, I think, hate equally. How do you like the term "unearned income"? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Is what you may as well say, right? Yeah, right. As as one uh, of our notorious presidents said a few years back, you didn't make that. Yeah, exactly. you didn't build that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, I did, actually. <laughs> okay, I think there's another really yep. uh, important question from Marshall BLR. And I can actually comment on this, too, from my educational background. It says, what is the best age to start to educate our children on money and to explain that money is mainly a tool for everyday usage only, for everyday usage only, but not something that our personality and personal judgment depends upon uh that's that's, that's a lot to, i'm um, not sure what the well, not, ending I, portion means but i'm sure you yeah, can comment sure on the educating children on money and when is the right time to start but i think bruce you had a thought there well to me and then rabbi you um uh, just chime in whenever you like but to me there's there would not be any specific time i i would say that children learn best by modeling you know, um, and so I, I say this all the time, authenticity comes from a place that people are very good at deciphering what a person really means. And that is from 
from birth because a child cannot communicate, but they can actually see the expressions and the feelings on their parents. And so they're constantly learning mm-hmm. because they can't say to themselves, hey, mom, what do, you, what do you mean by this when, they're, when they don't have, have any communicative skills? So we learn that from a, a newborn actually just taking in the world and learning. So I would say there's no specific time that a child is not learning from the modeling of what you're doing. So um, don't hesitate to not only model, but communicate at a very, very young age. Yes. Are they not going to understand that uh, money comes from your, Mm. your physical labor and what you're actually producing in society, but you really need to start showing them at a, a very young age, how money works and, and your value system around money. Well, and I'm just going to make one quick comment before you jump in, Rabbi. As young as, I mean, eight years old, a friend of my daughter's, who I will proudly say was not my daughter making this comment, but said something about, I just need a boyfriend who can give me a $1,000 phone. Better yet, he can give me a $2,000 phone. She had no concept of how money works, that you earn it. You don't just get somebody else to give you these things in life because money doesn't just, it's not this, uh, you know, vending machine situation. And I, I would say the concept of relationships was also completely messed up there. But I was just going to say, there's, there's a whole lot more wrong <laughs> yes. with that. Yes. And so I had a whole <laughs> conversation and teachable moment with my daughter afterwards. But um, what's just so interesting is they're interested in money much younger than we expect. They're asking questions about money much younger than we expect. And even my three-year-old probably for a year already, has been playing with play money and transacting while I'm in the grocery store, I'm shopping, and I'm going to pay you at the My Pretend Cash Register. So they're already thinking about money at a very young age. No, you're right about that. And by the way, there used to be toys much more available than they are today, uh, where you used to get for your child um, a whole bag of plastic coins of various denominations. And it used to come with a little a toy cash register. Mm-hmm. Um Today, it's very hard to get those toys for two reasons. One, they don't have batteries and flashy lights. And number two, uh, people are worried that, you know, money is so evil and wrong. This is so much a part of the culture that what sort of responsible, socially conscious toy manufacturer would arrange for children to be able to play with money? Mm. You know, it's filthy. That's that's a a huge part of it. and so, fortunately, on this question, I, I have something to respond to. The question is, what age should the child be before you start instructing the child on money, I think? And ancient Jewish wisdom has an answer, an exact number answer. And the answer is minus three quarters. <laughs> you know what that means? In the womb, I would imagine. Three-fourths of a year that, ago. <laughs> it, it means the time to start educating a child on money is nine months before the child is born. Mm. And one of the reasons that uh, we Jews believe that God gave us nine months instead of, you know, it could be a, a far more, it could be like um, uh, certain forms of, of seaweed. Um, I forget the name of it grows about a foot a day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So um uh, wh- why not have a child, you know, pop out, you know, two days after conception? Um, because we need time to prepare. Mm-hmm. And part of the preparation is for 
uh, father and mother to be on the same page. And that can take a few months to get right because, you know, maybe they only got married, you know, who knows? I don't know, maybe a year before, whatever. Uh, so they're still, they're still, they've spent much more of their lives as separate uh, individuals than they have in this new unit called a marriage. And so it wouldn't be good for a child to pop into the world before they got their act together. And so when uh, pregnancy begins, a mother and a father look at each other and say, hey, you know what? We're on the express uh, track now. We've only got nine months to get our act together. And one of the things we have to get our act together on is money. And so, for instance, uh, up till now, you know, you've always spoken of my money and I've spoken of my money. Well, we got to realize that that's no good now. And it's true. Uh, my spouse might be home and building building a home and focusing on, on family matters. And I'm at work 10 hours a day, but I would never speak about my money. It's our money because she's doing as much to earn it as you are. Because your effectiveness is dramatically enhanced by the peace of mind that comes from knowing that when you come home, you're not going to be greeted by somebody who's competing with you in competitiveness and economic energy. And you're not going to be listening to her draining saga of what a rough day she had, mm -hmm. but you are going to be greeted as a returning warrior from battle. And there's enormous value in that. You go through your day quite differently when you know that your wife is going to be greeting you on your arrival home in the way that she should be. Now, I know I'm speaking in a way that sounds old-fashioned, and I understand that many couples have no option but for both spouses to be working, and I get that. But if I am telling you how the world really works, and I'm giving you guidance on how best to structure your family and financial lives, then I can't possibly give you 27 different variations of the ways many of us have adjusted the complexities and exigencies of our life. I, you know, it's like a, a bridge. If I'm going to teach you practical engineering and, and applied mathematics, I'm not going to give you every single situation of uh, different widths of rivers or canyons and different rocks formations and mud bottoms of rivers. I'm going to give you the basic principles of all the rules that govern bridge construction, and you then will use them to make your best possible decision. And so in the, in the same way, um, yes, the ideal model is for uh, husband and wife, man and woman, to to build a partnership in which each delivers a different quality. You know, if uh, uh, Steve Jobs partnered with Wozniak for building the Apple computer, they were not exactly the same. You know, one had more of an artistic temperament, one had more of a business temperament. You know, classically, if if you establish a partnership to to uh, create an economic enterprise, you don't take two people who've got exactly the same talents. You don't need to do that. And so, similarly, in in a marriage, the same thing is true. And that's why it's so important to understand 
that uh, the money is something we both bring into existence. Only through our partnership is it possible. Now, fine, my wife has to work as well. So let's figure it out. Let's let's look towards a time she can move to part-time. Let's move towards a time she can leave a job she has to commute to, to a job she can do it, whatever. You do the best you can, but you're hopelessly lost if you don't have an ideal set of circumstances to build your paradigm on. So, uh, so yes, uh, nine months before the baby is born, you start getting your act together on money. And, uh, and as Rachel said quite correctly, uh, the child is learning very, very, very early on. Um, I think it's important early on for a child to have an understanding of what sort of work the parent does do, how it works. And how it's possible that when we need to go to the store and buy $50 worth of groceries, where did that $50 come from? And again, there there too, I would recommend that while the child is relatively young, if you possibly can, you know, pay cash. If the child's with you at the store, pay cash. Because they have to see something transferring hands, even though the reality is that money is spiritual and it might just be a credit card, which is, in a sense, uh, the equivalent of a handshake. You know, you shake yeah. somebody's hand and say, I'll pay you at the end of the week. That's kind of what a credit card is. Or a check. So, or a check. Writing a check is the same so, thing. You know? so exactly the same thing. So uh, educating a child, I think uh, all three of us agree that in answer to your question, uh, is that it's much earlier than you suspect. Yes. So we, and it's so missing we, in so many places. And it's about the principles of money that really are needed. It's not just all the extraneous things, how to balance a checkbook, how to um, spend, how to um, get a job. It's not just that. There's just so much about money that we need to be teaching because it doesn't just come naturally. And it's extremely important exactly. for their long-term success and flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Bruce. So what I, well, I'm just saying, Rabbi, just like always, 60 minutes have just flown by yes. talking to you. And uh, but I do think we have one more question. We have several questions, but I have one more. We have one more question, I think. Sure. Um, sure. I, I love I love hearing what's on people's minds. This is such a great system that you can actually have people asking questions in real time. So, yeah, absolutely. Let's try and yeah, take whatever we can. Yeah, so Turf Painter, Turf Painter says, leave it on the all on the field. He, uh, he or she mentioned, leave it all. Thank you all for what a credible time of learning, learning. Thank you. But how the question is, how are we to price our service? What is the guide? What is the guide our pricing strategy? I have my opinion on that, but I'm going to let you lead off on this because I think we probably are in the same, uh, in the same boat as far as you know, what would really be interesting. I, you know, I would love to hear what the questioner would say in answer to his own or her own question, because um, I've often had people ask me at uh, at live events, at lectures or, or, or speeches that I've given at various churches or for companies, people will sometimes say to me, hey, um, how do I uh, establish a fair price for my goods or my services? And, and that word fair is used very often. Mm-hmm. And and the answer is is really very simple and um, and not at all complicated. Uh, you have to price your goods and services at the figure that gives you the highest revenue. 
if you make your uh, price low, then you're going to get more customers. But that amount of customers multiplied by the unit price of your services will come to a certain figure, call it X. Then if you raise your price, you'll have fewer people, but they'll all be paying more. Uh, and, and that figure will be Y. And whether X or Y is bigger will tell you which direction to go. This is very, very simple mathematics. This is you do not need to, to get a master's degree in math to be able to find out how to price your basically you price for maximum income. Simple as that. It is a, we're, it's an auction system, is all it is. So you're of like, course it is. You're, all you're doing is saying, here's my price. Who wants to accept the price? And if you have of a lot, if you have a lot of people accepting the price, then you can choose to keep the price at that time, at that amount, but then you're not going to be able to start, you're going to be able to service more people, but not maybe service them as well. So then, exactly. so then you can say to yourself, I will raise the price and see who wants to pay this price and I'll have fewer people, but then I can have a more personal relationship. And in their minds, I'm servicing them better. And so Absolutely. it's a simple auction situation where you're just deciding how the invisible hand of the economy works. And if, yeah, you, if right. you raise it too high, then Nobody's obviously- Nobody's going to buy it. You just bring it down until somebody starts buying. It's, it is it is really that simple, but people are afraid to, to use that auction system. Yeah, because they want to know what's right, You know what's right. moral, what's fair. You're not understanding how this system works. Fairness and morality is built into the pricing structure exactly. because, of what, because of the auction, as you rightly call it. Absolutely. The only time pricing is immoral is if you're pointing a gun at somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, if, you, uh, if, you, if you go into a convenience store and point a 357 Magnum at the clerk and you say, give me $100, that's an immoral price. <laughs> yeah, so yes. I, I, actually, I actually have to follow up with this because uh, the, the person just asked about he, did, they, he or she doesn't want to lose potential customers. Sometimes I think it's okay to lose potential customers because those people that are always focused only on price are going to continue to only focus on price and they are and they are so as soon as they see another price they're going to go running to that other price and so they're not going to actually look at the value that that you are bringing so so set your price and attract the people that you want to work with I'm going to- no obviously i mean if you're selling a product for $10 and uh shall we say uh 20 people are your customers, so you're making $200. But if you raised your price from $10 to $20, and uh, the number of people who buy from you drops from 20 to 15, well, now you're making $300. So that, that tells you, great, I must raise my price, that's all. It's, it's a simple calculation. Uh, of course, you'll lose customers if you raise your price, but the number of customers you lose may not be as many as more than makes up for it in the price increase. It's simple arithmetic. Anybody can do it. I'm going to give a quick shout out here to Mike McCallowitz. He has a book called, I think it's The Pumpkin Plan. Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, he that, had that, that's, that's a, correct. Yes. A Venn diagram in the book that's really powerful that helps you look at your unique advantages in mm-hmm. business. And you need to realize that your unique ability is not 
the lowest price. That's not the ideal positioning to be in. Maybe you're the best quality or you deliver the fastest service or you service the broadest area or you only service exclusively one particular neighborhood. I mean, you, your name is Turf Painter. So I'm thinking that you mean um, that that's maybe your profession. But um, when you're in your niche, you have a unique advantage that makes you different. Your competitive advantage makes you different than anyone else and use that to capitalize on not just the lowest price. And then also, Rachel, times change. In other words, you might start a business uh, making available a very new and novel thing, and and you you can sell it at a very good price. Uh, but maybe the the obstacles to entry in this business are very low, and within a year, there's 20 other people selling the same thing. It's time to get out of that and get into something else. Is obviously not a good thing to stay in. So as long as something is um is profitable then then it's good but that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way in fact one thing you can be sure of is it won't always be that way i, I remember a number of years ago jeff bezos from amazon uh said you know one thing i know is that amazon won't be around forever i don't know what's going to knock us off the pedestal but something will uh amazon today looks as 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 invulnerable as sears roebuck did mm-hmm you know, in the 1960s. Yes. Uh, th- th- it really was like that. And somebody, well, i got to tell you, Sears won't be here forever. Oh, yeah, right. Like the Grand Canyon won't be here forever. Well, I don't know about the Grand Canyon, but Sears Roebuck wasn't around forever. And so, thing, yeah, things change. It's uh, Schumpeter, to the, the German economist, called it creative destruction. Ah, mm-hmm. We could talk for it quite some time. So I know we need to bring this to a conclusion just for the sake of time and respecting everyone's time here today. Um, but this has been a really powerful conversation. I think somebody even um, shared, they just said, um, actually it was Turf Painter as well. Thank you all. What an incredible time of learning. And I love the conversations that we have with you, Rabbi, because there's just so much to reveal through the topic. I mean, there's just so much more behind the topic than we can even address when we put Thank up you. a put up a, a, a topic or a, a concept that we're going to discuss. And so I think one of the huge takeaways is that there is all of this subconscious messaging in our society that money is bad, that we need to give to those who need the most, that it's need-based. We need to redistribute wealth, Bruce, as you were talking about in the beginning, that it's all about fairness. It's about equality. It's about um, somebody besides me should control the money just so that I'm not being immoral by having control of money at all. And that's not a sustainable system. When you can look at this concept of money being spiritual and recognize that we are spiritual beings that can increase our our ability to serve others, when you then um, really begin ta- making a choice to advance your position in the world, you will find that there's just so much value in wisdom that guides your decision-making with finances. So um, thank you so much for joining us today, Rabbi. I didn't even give you a proper introduction in the beginning. Um, we have That's right. we have talked with you on the show so many times, I forgot your bio altogether. You've done tremendous work though. Please tell our listeners and our audience how they can get in touch with you for your shows, your books, your courses, and all the work that you provide and make available. Uh, the best way is rabbidaniellappin.com. And um, I'm I'm there and uh, looking forward to, to seeing anybody there. Wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much for listening today. Thank you for all of the questions. Thank you for everyone who right now just on YouTube, it shows 50 people watching live. And we don't know if those are the same 50 that were a few minutes ago, uh, but it's just powerful to know that you have um, just the ability to reach a lot of people. So YouTube is a powerful platform. Social media is a powerful platform to be able to share ideas, um, which is a very spiritual thing. So so thank you for being yeah. here today, Bruce. Yeah, the final thing is, you know, there's a lot of people that have come in really late and, and they say, oh, I'm shoot, I just, I came in late. Uh, you can find this on uh, YouTube, hopefully forever, uh, at our channel, The Money Advantage. And you can actually see all the other uh, times that we've talked to the re uh, rabbi. And thank thanks for participating today. Rachel and I really appreciate it. Oh, great to be with you. It really is. Thank you. All right. So we're going to wrap up the show for today. You can find this podcast on all social media platforms at The Money Advantage, as Bruce was sharing. It's also live on, it will be live later on the podcast. And we have a blog as well at themoneyadvantage.com. So you can find any of Bruce and I's work that we do there, helping people really just look at their finances mm -hmm. from a healthy perspective, maximize their money and do the most with it and be in financial control. So with that, we're going to leave you today and we appreciate you being on this journey with us. So in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So follow the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.